Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I hunt out the best audio stories I can find and share them with you. Coming up today, getting to know some strange new neighbours. Dawn told me she never wanted to go back. I remember saying to Joe it was a cross between a scene from Meet the Fockers and something, what was the other thing we could Fellini, yes. said. Fellini, yes. said. Fellini. <laughs> Then Inside the Comedians, a spoof interview show that tests out its guests' improvisation skills. Uh, now, you shot to fame, and I use that word quite wrongly. Mm. Um, but with your own sitcom on Radio 4, um, mm. set around a small, family-run pharmaceutical giant. A new local true crime show made by a husband and wife in their spare time scales the New Zealand podcast charts. Mother has fallen in with everything beautifully, and the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So next time I write in this diary, Mother will be dead. How odd, yet how pleasing. And finally, the New York Library, sharing stories beyond the bookshelves. I think we could make a claim that Greenpoint might be the smelliest place in New York, right? We have a long history of bad odours. And next time you hear something good, then do please let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. <laughs> Doctor patient, lawyer client. There are some special relationships where we trust a professional to do the right thing, to act in our best interests at all times. The relationship between a psychiatrist and the person going to see them shouldn't be any different. But as The Shrink Next Door shows, things can go badly wrong when we turn to the wrong person for help. It's an odd, intriguing case of mistaken identity, psychological manipulation, and a publicity-hungry shrink dating back nearly 30 years. By any measure, Marty Markowitz was a success. He had an Ivy League diploma a law degree, his own business, and plenty of money. But when he hit 38, he found himself feeling seriously overwhelmed. His rabbi recommended a therapist he knew, who had an office on Manhattan's east side. I go into his office, which was, you know, a modestly furnished office with a desk and a chair and a couch. The therapist's name was Dr. Isaac Hirschkoff, but he told Marty to call him Ike. He was a young, handsome man with a round face, a close-cropped beard, and curly black hair. He was dressed casually in an open-collar shirt and shorts. I sat down right across from him, and we looked at each other, and uh, he said, okay, why are you here? Marty had seen a therapist before, the kind who would listen while you lay down on the couch and talk about your dreams. 
this therapist was different. His uh, modus operandi was basically, I'm your pal, tell me what's bothering you, and let's take it from there. Marty spent the whole session laying out his problems. He told Ike how his father and mother had recently died, how he'd inherited the family business, how he was having a hard time dealing with his new responsibilities. When he'd finished, Marty says Ike looked at him and said, I'm going to take you on as a patient. And I said, okay, nice. Not only was Ike taking him on as a patient, but he made Marty a promise. He said, don't worry, I'll take care of everything. I was overwhelmed. And to have someone say to me, don't worry, calm down, this is nothing to get upset about, we're going to straighten everything out, and we're going to do it fast. Very comforting to me. Marty wrote him a check. I think it was for $160, something like that, back, back in the day. It was June 1981. Marty had come to Ike because he needed help. But if he had known what his new therapist had in store for him, he probably would have walked out the door and never come back. From Wondery and Bloomberg, I'm Joe Nocera, and this is The Shrink Next Door. This is episode one. Welcome to the neighborhood. Every neighborhood has its share of mysteries. We can live our entire lives and barely know the people just one door down. I have a summer house in Southampton, a couple of hours outside of New York. This part of the Hamptons is called the Bayside. It's quiet, peaceful, a place to escape from the city in the hot summer months. Samson and Jackie Giot have a house on the same street as me. My name is Jacqueline Giot, and we're married uh, 35 years. We're married 52 years. They've been coming here since the 80s. Most of the houses on our street are single-story with wooden clappered fronts. Samson and Jackie's house is no different. It's a lovely home, really. But there's one house on the street that stands out. For starters, it's just bigger than most of the other houses. It's two stories instead of one, and it's the only one on the street with a separate guest house out back. And then there's the way it looks. The house is spectacular with windows and windows and windows. Everything about it is over the top. There's a pond with goldfish, lots of fish, and a waterfall to the pond, too. It's bigger, bolder brasher than anything else on the street. In 2010, my wife Dawn and I bought the house next door. And right away, our neighbor's place gave Dawn a headache. The first thing I said to my husband was, we are going to screen as much as we can Dawn. that property. Jesus. And we did. We ended up planting a border of bamboo. That was the very first property that we tried to through careful landscape design screen. You're hopeless, honey. What's wrong with that? Aside from what we can see from our yard, the house next door was the last thing on her mind. Or mine, for that matter. We just had a baby, so we were a little preoccupied. But even if we weren't paying attention to our neighbors, they were paying attention 
to us. From our mailman to the next-door neighbors, people quickly learned that Joe worked for the New York Times. It wasn't long before a man popped over to our house to introduce himself. He was dressed like a maintenance man, green khaki pants, a long sleeve work shirt, and a faded baseball cap. He welcomed us to the neighborhood, and then he handed us a folder of press clippings. I literally just took them and said thank you, and, but he wanted us to have them. You know, he really wanted Joe to have them. There were articles that a psychiatrist, Dr. Isaac Hirschkoff, had written, and articles that had been written about him. In mid-August, an invitation arrived to a summer barbecue next door, hosted by Dr. Hirschkoff, Ike. This would be the last of three big summer parties he threw every year. I went alone. To reach the front door, I had to cross a bridge over a fish pond. There were maybe 40 or so guests hanging out in the backyard. I roamed about, stopping here and there to chat. I spotted the actor Richard Kind, just in time to see him do a belly flop into the pool. There were a handful of other people, too, people I recognized as prominent New Yorkers, like Dr. Ruth, the TV personality and sex expert. It was a warm afternoon. I chatted with a few people, sipped on my glass of wine, and began to wander around. At some point, I found myself in the living room. There was a fake giraffe bust, Venetian masks, plastic parrots hanging from the ceiling, even a giant gong. But what struck me most were the photographs. Lots and lots of photographs. And in nearly every one of them, there was Ike. Ike with Henry Kissinger. Ike with Brooke Shields. Ike with Gwyneth Paltrow. Even Ike with O.J. Simpson. It was like one of those diners where the walls are covered with pictures of celebrity patrons. At that moment, the man himself appeared. He greeted me like a long-lost friend and said that my wife and I should come over soon for a drink. And then he was gone. Sure enough, a few days after the summer party, the same maintenance man we'd met before showed up at our door again. This time, he brought an invitation for drinks. It was very formal, as if he was reading from a script. You mean like Dr. Hirschkoff would want you to come over? Right at such and such a time, on such and such a day. The formality of it blew me away, and he was very, very exacting about how it had to go. So we went. One of the strangest evenings I've ever had in the Hamptons. Or anywhere else, for that matter. But definitely the Hamptons. It was pouring rain. We headed over, umbrellas in hand. To get to the front door, we crossed a bridge. We could see Koi circling in the water below. Ike and his wife, Becky, welcomed us in and ushered us to a round kitchen table. There were snacks laid out, carrots and celery. Ike served white wine. So what I remember is, the things that I really remember, him talking incessantly about being a sex therapist and a celebrity therapist. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the details, but that, that just really sticks in my mind that he kept going on and on about that. It was more like a monologue than a dialogue. That's what I remember. Mm -hmm. What do you remember? I just remember thinking these people are... I felt suffocated. Ike talked about his work. I've never seen anything like it, but I remember thinking 
He was very brazen about the details of his life, considering we were strangers and also considering what he does. He did talk about an NBA sports guys and yeah. somebody, a Yankees player. I, I just thought he lacked a lot of discretion, given his field. We listened politely as he went on and on. I just remember looking towards the door. Finally, after about an hour, I said we needed to get home. And we got up to leave, and it was very clear that Ike wanted a photograph. A photograph of me? I think he came out and said, well, we'd like to get a picture of you. And it was just Joe. It wasn't (laughs) Joe and I. Then it hit me. Ike wanted a picture because in his eyes, a columnist for the Times was a kind of celebrity. I remember a desperation. Can we get your photograph? You know, we'd like to get this photograph. I thought the whole thing was just... Strange. Strange. I couldn't see a way out. I was doomed to hang on the wall with Richard Kind, O.J., and Gwyneth Paltrow. Okay, I said. And Ike went to grab a camera, one of those instant Polaroid things. He led me into an alcove where there were hundreds of other photos pinned to the wall. I didn't want to be another face on the wall, to tell you the truth. It felt weird. But I also wanted to be polite, and I really wanted to get out of there. So I let Ike take my picture, pin it to his wall, and then we left as fast as we could. I remember getting to our home collapsing on the couch or something. Dawn told me she never wanted to go back. I remember saying to Joe it was a cross between a scene from Meet the Fockers and something, what was the other thing we Fellini, could Fellini, he yes. said. Yes. Fellini. <laughs> there was no sign of the maintenance man the night Dawn and I went over, but I knew he was still around. Sometimes we'd be on our deck and we'd see him outside working in the yard. My neighbor, Samson Giat, saw him too. I remember during the conversation, I mentioned to Ike how beautiful his property is and how lucky he was, or is, to have this fellow that runs around all the time taking care of the property. He remarked that, um, yeah, he was lucky. Um, uh, he's a, a good worker. When I returned to the Hamptons the following summer, I noticed something strange at the house next door. I would see the maintenance man out on the property doing his usual work in the backyard. But Ike Hirschkoff was gone. I would never see him or his wife Becky in the Hamptons again. There were no more summer parties. It was as if they had simply disappeared. And that's when I learned that everything I had thought I'd known about my neighbor was wrong. It's, it's a wild story. That's the maintenance man. The guy who came to our door with the press clippings. The guy we saw working around the yard. That was Marty Markowitz. The same guy who had first gone to see Dr. Isaac Hershkoff as a patient nearly 30 years earlier. Some of part one of The Shrink Next Door called Welcome to the Neighbourhood, written and presented by Joe Nacera and produced by Wandery in partnership with Bloomberg. Do you ever hear celebrity interviews that sound just a little bit forced and scripted? 
like they're trotting out the same old answers to questions they've heard a hundred times before. If so, try a dose of Inside the Comedian with David Reed. It's an interview show with a refreshing difference. The host and the guests all add lib and make up the questions and the answers as they go along. David's a comedian himself and you can sometimes hear him throw a guest with a particularly bizarre question, then listen to them scrabbling to recover. And these improvised conversations, most of them recorded in front of a live audience, can take some seriously surreal twists. Comedians, writers, work horses, leisure donkeys, lovers, fighters, loin igniters. Max Alesca and Ivan Gonzalez, welcome to Inside the Comedian. Pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank it, you. It's an absolute joy to have you on the show. It Thank really you is. for redesigning the room as per our specifications. <laughs> that is quite all right. We all like a sleepy plane ride to somewhere. Premium, <laughs> premium economy chic. This is, <laughs> it's the lounge of our dreams. It really is the brand of the London Podcast Festival. But we are coming to you not live from... <laughs> um, now, unlike my previous guests, you are two distinct people. Um, have you found that to be a disadvantage in the industry? I'm glad you asked us that, David. Oh, um, good. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Could you elaborate on that, or is that all I'm going to get from you? Well, I mean, without giving away too many industry secrets, lots, lots of castings are for one man. Mm. <laughs> Often... I would go so far as to say most castings are for one man. For one man, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes, and we're catching a lot of flack for that uh, <laughs> as an industry. Mm. But honestly, you'll read a casting breakdown and very rarely uh, is, is the character in question two separate people. Mm. <laughs> Which obviously hasn't stopped us turning up for some of those castings. I'm very good with my hands and I've made a big coat... Um, for the two of us. Ivan... Well, you've got to have another career in case acting doesn't yes. work out. We've been nudging him that way. <laughs> coat manufacturer seems as good as any. Well, if you're good with your hands, then you can make a good coat. It's what they say. It is what they say. <laughs> so what, what, uh, what castings have you gone for as two people that they've really not been into that? Uh, Thor. Thor. <laughs> I mean, they saw bloody everyone for they, Thor. Didn't did you they? go in for it as well? I went in for Thor. How yes, did it go? yes, yes. I also went in for Natalie Portman, uh, really? uh, <laughs> which you may not remember is the name of his girlfriend in that film. Yes, <laughs> yes. That was in development hell for a while. That a long script, time. Wasn't it? They just pushed, and they just went off. Oh, Pushed it, Natalie they Portman. pushed it through, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. No, and I noticed you didn't get the part of Thor. No. Ivan gave a very decent turn as, as the hammer in the room. Yes. <laughs> Mjolnir. Uh, yes, I'm often referred to as dead weight. <laughs> <laughs> only I am capable of lifting him. <laughs> I've heard it said, only... Yes, only Max is capable of lifting Ivan for quite so long. Yes. Isn't that... A feat of superhuman... <laughs> Mutant, or, or is it just magical? I can't remember. I believe he's a god. One of the, one of the many reasons we were asked to leave. <laughs> they hate it if you don't understand also, the mythos. They, they deemed Ivan's hammer makeup to be racist, which was unfortunate. <laughs> and a complete misreading of the part. I'm so sorry. But, but I don't am, tell us, Ivan. I am. Uh, the people at home can't um, see it, but I am still, made up. Still wearing that makeup. As, as a hammer. wonderful hammer. Yes. Mm. Apologies again. <laughs> I really admire your commitment to build your upper body <laughs> and let your legs waste to almost <laughs> nothing. 
Just wither. <laughs> wither. Friends don't let friends skip head day. No. <laughs> some of Inside the Comedian featuring Max and Ivan, and sometimes, just sometimes, a quick-witted guest like John Finnamore can turn the tables on the host. Uh, now, you shot to fame, and I use that word quite wrongly. Mm. Um, but with your own sitcom on Radio 4, um, mm. set around a small, family-run pharmaceutical giant. Um, <laughs> how did that idea come about? You mean the idea for cabin Pfizer? Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, well, um, it's, 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 it's a sort of... Dull, really. It's, it's just that my father was a uh, pharmaceutical giant. And, uh, and by that, I don't mean he ran it or anything. I mean that a, uh, a cocktail of drugs, he, he took it ill-advisedly in the 60s, turned him into a giant. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's got its uh, ups and downs, uh, mainly ups. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was just basically looking at what he was and the thing that had made him that way made me think, oh, well, that also means a type of company. I'll write a sitcom about that. <laughs> now, had you any idea that uh, one of your co-stars in Farms... Uh, in uh, that... Gavin Pfizer. Thank you. <laughs> Gavin Pfizer uh, would become so famous. Well, you're talking, of course, about, uh, you know, before the great big detective show, you're talking about Joan Hickson. That's right. <laughs> and, Joan Hickson. Uh, no, I mean... An uh, unknown, a relative unknown Well, absolutely. Time. Joan was just, uh, you know, just... just uh, do, couldn't get arrested on television, really. Uh, no. Ironically. Uh, and, uh, but then it was during the making of our show that she got the Marple gig. And, of course, after that, it just went haywire. It went crazy. I mean, she has performed in so many of our famous characters. You know, Marple. Mm-hmm. Continue the list. Um, <laughs> yes. Um... Indiana Jones. <laughs> Deckard. <laughs> I mean, I could go on. No, yes, I know you could. So many. So many. Do you think it'll ever come back? Well, you know, I keep writing every day to the commissioner saying, please let me have another go, but, um, yeah, we'll just wait and see if they read their post. Mm, mm. Do you think they do read their post? I don't think they do read their no, post. No, I don't think they read no. their post. I don't think anyone reads their post anymore, really. I've got a massive pile of posts, don't know what to do with it. I don't open my post. I don't, know, I don't so have I'm, time. No, I do have time, and yet I don't open it. <laughs> that is the tragedy of my life. So as tragedies go, that's pretty small. My it's life's quite great. a small tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've lived quite a charmed life. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, although, I, you know, that's why I write sitcom. If I had a happy life, I'd write sitrage. <laughs> but my one attempt at that, um, the seagull. <laughs> yes, the yes. sitcom. The uh, situation tragedy, yeah, the seagull. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I tried to turn Chekhov's masterpiece into a sitcom. Uh, but but, but what, uh, the twist is that I had, um, I had a, a human actor play the titular seagull. Yes. And all of the other characters were played by, by seagulls. Seagulls, yeah. <laughs> and I think actually where it failed is that that gave it a certain levity you weren't intending well, upon. Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, seagulls are cheap. But they on are the other very hand, cheap. They cannot act. No, they cannot act. I mean, there's that one memorable scene they show in all the clip shows of them fighting over a slice of pizza. Yeah. Yes. Apart from that, it and was... they got that from the off. To be fair, really? at, the, at the table read, they were all over that. But um, sadly, the one where you know they were carpooling, and but somebody had forgotten to bring their daughter. They just that was just them squawking in a in a citron, which uh, it's bad television. Yes, it's a yeah. vine at best. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? 
and you know, casting the one human, uh, casting Jason Siegel just because of the name. Wears off after the pilot. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He wasn't the right man for the job. We no. should have, you know, paid the extra money and got Bonneville. <laughs> I mean, he would have been wonderful in the role, <laughs> wouldn't he? Yes, in a fiesta full of seagulls. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of Inside the Comedian, featuring John Finnamore, hosted by David Reed and produced by Ed Morrish. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. Over the past few weeks, I've been noticing an unfamiliar name near the top of the local podcast charts, right up there alongside big shows like Joe Rogan, Stuff You Should Know and The Daily. True Crime New Zealand. And this independent, locally produced podcast made by a husband and wife team for fun in their spare time has been up as high as number four in the charts, even though it only started up last month. In a moment, I'll speak to Sirius Rust, not his real name, who thought that success would be getting just a few listeners. The other interesting thing is the way the show's been responding to its reviews. The first True Crime New Zealand episode I heard was one all about Minnie Dean. On August the 12th, 1895, Southland baby farmer Wilhelmina Dean became the first and only woman to be sentenced to death in New Zealand. The name of Minnie Dean lives on, and around that name has grown a legend. Southland children who misbehave are threatened, not with boogeymen, but with being sent to Minnie Dean. If that style sounds ever so slightly familiar, it might remind you of another show we featured on the podcast hour before, Case File, a true crime show narrated by a deadpan, almost monotonous, anonymous Australian narrator who keeps his true identity secret. But a few reviewers of True Crime New Zealand weren't big fans. Horrible narration, it's almost unbearable. The narrator's terrible, change him. I'm sorry, but is this a joke? It's good, but sorry, the narrator is terrible. All of which must have been a bit of a blow for Sirius and his wife to hear, who, remember, they're new to this and they're doing it all in their spare time at home. But they confronted the criticism head on, releasing another episode which said, We have had a great response so far, with lots of positive feedback, as well as hearing some criticism, particularly around the style of narration. This is a style we tried out and ultimately just didn't work out as intended. This is something we are attempting to remedy, As hard as criticism is to hear sometimes, thank you for letting us know what you think, because ultimately, it will make the show better. The new style of narration will begin as of next episode. And the latest episode, all about the Parker Hume case, that's the 1954 murder portrayed in the Peter Jackson film Heavenly Creatures, well, it all sounds quite a lot different. The scheme to murder Honora Parker was planned ahead of time, in detail. Juliet would collect a large rock, which later became half a brick, and place it in a stocking. They would then lure Honora out near a small wooden bridge in Victoria Park. Juliet would then drop a pink stone on the ground. When Miss Parker would lean down to pick up the stone, Pauline would hit her on the head with the brick in the stocking, killing her. This would hopefully look like she had tripped and hit her head on the hard stone ground. By that time, Pauline was calculating harsh and cynical. June 21st, 1954. 
I rose late and helped mother vigorously this morning. Deborah rang and we decided to use a rock and a stocking rather than a sandbag. We discussed the moida fully. I feel very keyed up, as though I were planning a surprise party. Mother has fallen in with everything beautifully and the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So next time I write in this diary, mother will be dead. How odd, yet how pleasing. I asked Sirius, who makes the show, about the reception to the podcast. I never expected it to go this big. It, it never it never crossed my mind. When me and my wife were talking about it and we were about to release it, she said to me, what's the minimum amount of people you would do it for, you know, like in, in say, six months? And I go, hey, man, if 10 people are listening in six months, I'll keep going. And it's blown my expectation out of the water. I'm guessing Sirius Rust is not your real name. <laughs> no, I sort of do it under a pen name. That's, that's a pen name. But uh, just to sort of distance myself a little bit from the show, sort of make it a separate sort of entity from my sort of personal life so that there's no sort of baggage within my life, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess because uh, uh, I'm familiar with Case File that you might also be a fan of, and I was going to ask you a little bit about your influences because when I'm listening to your podcast, I don't know if you've heard Case File before, but it's a podcast where it's like an anonymous Australian narrator, very deadpan, tells you the story. You don't get any extraneous facts about him. It's, uh, of course, I've heard Case File. If you've heard, if you've heard my podcast, yeah. I don't want to be a sort of personality, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. I don't. I would rather just have the stories be their own stories and not complicate it with my own sort of personal life. Because I think I can detect a slight Southland burr in your accent, can I? People say that a lot. I'm actually from, originally from Whanganui, and uh, my, my wife, she's from Auckland. And when I moved to Auckland uh, to do some you know, university stuff. We met there and then we ended up sort of moving uh, down to Wellington. Now we, that's where we live. Oh, Actually so you're live in, in Wellington, uh, are you? Yeah, Lower Hutt. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, the R thing. I get a lot of uh, the yeah. rolling R yeah. thing, but I don't, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> Just uh, picked that up from somewhere, I guess. Tell me a little bit about how you came up with the idea for the podcast. What, what, where did that come from? It actually you know, strangely enough, sort of came from me listening to Case File. And uh, I'm sure that doesn't surprise anyone. But when I was listening to it, I was going through, you know, I I love that show, obviously. And I was going back through the beginning, like from the beginning, and I uh, came across uh, one of the stories they did on uh, Snowtown. Do you, are you familiar with that story? No, I'm not. No. It's, it's a quite a famous Australian story. It's known more as bodies in the barrels. It's a horrific story. Absolutely horrific. But I sort of became, after listening to that episode on Case File, I sort of became very interested in researching that uh, case. I sort of went and watched the movie. They made a movie about it called Snowtown Murders, an Australian film that's amazing. It's an amazing movie if anyone wants to watch that. Uh, horrific. <laughs> Absolutely horrific, but uh, it's an amazing movie. And so I sort of got into that and I was reading about the crimes. I was reading the, I was reading a book about it and I sort of got into this research uh, hole about it and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed learning about the case and finding out new details and, and sort of extraneous bits of, uh, you know, detail that uh, weren't in the movie and weren't in the podcast. And I thought from that, the seed of my own show was sort of planted uh, where I just sort of after doing that, I was sitting at home. I came home from work one day and I said to my wife, uh, 
I'm just going to do a show. And I just sat down and I started doing some research. I was usually I was going to do it on the Scott Watson, Marlborough Sounds uh, murders. But I found that case to be so large that it was kind of intimidating for my first show. So I sort of dialed it back and sort of did a smaller one, uh, which was the Decelia Whitaker one. Yeah, that's sort of how where it came from. And then it sort of has just sort of got larger from there. Tell me a little bit about you. Like, what's your background? Have you got a background in, in writing of, of some sort of research? So when I went to, when I mentioned before moving to Auckland, originally what I was doing is I was, I was going to film school. When I came out of film school, I started working in television as an editor, as a, as a commercial editor. So I was cutting commercials. I was working for a TV channel at the time. So I got a lot of background in sort of editing, I guess, but not necessarily any writing, definitely not research. That is something that I'm absolutely new to. I went and got a library card. <laughs> I haven't had a library card in a long time. Uh, libraries are amazing. Uh, that's something I want to state here. <laughs> yeah, so I just sort of started started going for it. Just tried my best, started writing. Definitely hadn't done any narration. Definitely hadn't read anything out loud. That is a lot harder than I ever imagined it would be. Uh, just reading things off a piece of paper and making it sound good. That is something that is really takes a lot of time. And I think people take for granted how easy people make that sound on television and on podcasts. But it's something I'm working really hard on. Because I thought you did something quite interesting. You've you had, I think, four or five episodes out in the wild. And you I think you were referring to that as testing ground or a beta test of the idea. And you'd been getting lots of listeners and you'd been getting feedback. And some of it was, let's say, negative feedback or, you know, feedback saying, oh, you know, don't think much of the narrative style. And you did what I thought was quite a brave thing. You came out and you actually released a podcast saying, you know, yeah, we're working on things and we're going to change things up. And I've listened to what you've said and I'm going to change my style, which I thought was a pretty brave step. Was it difficult to hear you're obviously bowled over by the kind of reaction you're getting from people in terms of how many listeners, but was it difficult to hear some of that stuff? Oh, it was very difficult to hear. Criticism is something that I am new to receiving. Obviously, I've sort of been new to the world. And and like you said, I sort of had it in a, at a beta sort of stage. I, I sort of only sort of, quote unquote, launched the podcast on Monday, the 17th of June. And I sort of had that as almost like a as protection almost it's sort of like it's a way of me saying hey we're still learning we're still trying to work this whole thing out trying to make it as good as it can be and we yeah we sort of released those shows as sort of a hey let's just uh, see what the reaction is but the reaction was so overwhelming that that uh yeah people just started sending me things sending me that they really like the show that th yeah. this is what they really like about it but then there was not much but there was a couple of People that just were saying that the deadpan, you know, monotonous sort of delivery of it, of the whole thing was a little hard to listen to. And I can, you know, when I went back and I sort of listened to them through, I, I sort of, I could see that, you know, I could see that that was, that could be a thing that people weren't a big fan of. And that's okay. What I was afraid of is sort of the faster delivery or the sort of more inflected delivery would sort of take something away from the heart and soul of the show. But when I sort of tried it out and, 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 you know, did it, I think it sounded okay. I think it sort of didn't take too much away from it. I think there's still stuff I need to work on with it, but that's something I'll get better with, you know, as I keep going and getting better 
uh, reading things off a page. But at least you're getting people who are responding and feel strongly enough that they are going to write a review because, you know, I I know from experience that it's, you know, it's quite rare that it takes an effort for someone to sit there and write a review and a thought, something thoughtful about what you've done. And, and you're getting heaps of reviews, I thought. Every day, every day seems to be there's more there because my my wife sort of tries to curate it a little bit for me. So she sort of she sort of tells me the positive ones. Because oh, <laughs> it could be a bit brutal otherwise. Yeah. All in a row it is. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay to hear it every now and then. But for, uh, last week it seemed to be I was getting a bunch in a row. They were all saying the same thing, and that sort of got it. That got a little tough to hear. That I sort of had to disengage with it a little bit. But, you know, with time, that becomes easier. And, and, and hearing, and again, when people reach out and say positive things as well, and it's sort of, you know, you sort of pepper, pepper that, the, the positive reviews get peppered with the sort of negative ones. It sort of makes that a lot easier to, to sort of take on. You mentioned your wife a few times. Are you working on it together at all? Originally, it was just, I was working on it alone. And she, she sort of was there for support and she would help me. You know, I would talk through the cases with her. So I, I would sort of tell her the story of the case in my mind. And I, and from her reaction, I would find the the interesting stuff, you know, the, the, like the things she would react to. I'd be like, oh, that, that's something she finds interesting. I will sort of hold on to that and, and put that in the show. And when the focus became more on the narration and sort of getting that right, she became a larger part of that. And she became, I, I credit her as sort of the audio director because she sort of sits here and she gives me, she gives me uh, advice on. Uh, she's a English major. She graduated from the University of Auckland as, as an English major, so she helps me writing as well. She helps with the writing and, and the phrasing of certain sentences and things like that. And then she helps me record it. Yeah. So she's just she's a she's emotional support, but she's also a lot of help when it comes to the actual putting together of the podcast. But not, not so much the writing or the research, but more the, the practical part of putting together the podcast. And what is it about true crime, that, that genre that really appeals to you? Because you mentioned Case File. That's a, a popular, influential um, podcast. Um, and, and there's no shortage of, of others in that genre. Why, why true crime? Why are we, as people, interested in true crime? Why are we interested in the psychology of strange, abhorrent cases and, and, and sort of people that are different and, and I don't want to say evil, but, uh, what's a better word than evil, you know, not good people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When my wife's not here, that's, that's what I come up with. Um, (laughs) so that's something I've always been interested in. And I think that just trying to get into the minds of people that are different and think differently and how they got there is what I'm really interested in. If you sort of look, if you sort of analyze my show as much as I can, as much as the research as I can find, I sort of try to start at the beginning of the story, like preferably at, at the birth of the, of, of whoever the story is about. And I think that gives a lot of context. It's one of those things where the more I do it, the more the research is almost guaranteed when you get into the childhood, it's like a lack of love, a lack of compassion. This, the person was sort of either abused or they're sort of treated poorly or neglected. And I think that stuff's interesting because it sort of 
you know, when it builds to what what it is, you know, what the crime usually is, it's sort of, I don't want to say it makes you more sympathetic, but it sort of gives mm. you more context. And when you sort of read, you know, you hear about these crimes and you sort of see it represented in the news and, and in the media and newspapers and such, it's sort of, it's sort of a, out. Of, it's not out of context. They try to provide as much context as they can, but, but, you know, it's sort of, this is what happened. Sirius Rust from the True Crime New Zealand podcast. And you can find links of where to listen to more than subscribe if you go to rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now or search for True Crime New Zealand wherever you get your podcasts. Just about everyone seems to be making a podcast these days, even your local library. Borrowed from Brooklyn Public Library in New York shares the stories happening between the shelves that hold the more than four million books in its collection. Like any good library, it suggests good stuff to read, but it's not all about the books. Recorded in the library's own recording studio that you can book with your library card, Borrowed also celebrates the other things libraries do for their communities, like helping to record and archive local history. I think we could make a claim that Greenpoint might be the smelliest place in New York, right? We have a long history of bad odours. That's Jeff Cobb, a Greenpoint resident and historian who recently led a walking tour one windy day in Greenpoint. The bad odours weren't Greenpoint's fault. In the mid-1800s, Greenpoint became a centre for industry. The Erie Canal had just been built, which connected New York City to the Midwest by water, and factories were opening up on the waterfront in Brooklyn. It was heavy industry that brought the overwhelming smell to Greenpointers. Greenpoint's natural environment was radically changed by factories. It wasn't just the odours in the air, but the creatures in the water, too. If you can imagine this, in 1609, when Henry Hudson first discovers New York, there are about 220,000 acres of oyster beds. Uh, there's an estimate that there's well over a billion oysters right, in, the New York, uh, in New York City Bay. As, as Greenpoint industrializes, right, they, destroy, they destroy the water that the oysters live in, right, and right, by, by the 1870s, oysters are, are just a memory. Soon Greenpoint saw the five black arts move into the neighborhood. The black arts are industries that are known to be heavy polluters. Printing, glassmaking, porcelain, metallurgy. And then the most destructive industry, which comes in 1867, oil refining. You can't tell the modern story of Greenpoint without talking about oil refining. In 1919, 35 tanks of oil, naphtha, and other chemicals caught on fire. Residents and firefighters were injured as the fire burned for hours. People lined up on the street to watch the 70-foot plume of black smoke. Then, in 1950, part of the street exploded, shooting dozens of sewer covers three stories into the air. Three people were injured, and a 10-foot section of sidewalk was ripped apart. Residents of Greenpoint who were around in the 1950s remember the explosion. No one knew it at the time, but it was one of the first indications that something was very wrong underneath their feet. It wasn't until 1978 that the Coast Guard discovered gasoline in Newtown Creek, 
a plume of it leaking into the waterway that separates Queens from Brooklyn. A massive underground oil spill in Brooklyn may be far worse than anyone knew. The spill happened in Greenpoint, possibly at the turn of the 20th century. Tanks owned by ExxonMobil leak millions of gallons of oil into the soil and water there. The at first, it was estimated to be a 17 million gallon spill. But by 2007, the EPA cautioned that there could have been as many as 30 million gallons of oil that leaked into the land and water over the span of about 140 years. And cleanup of a spill that massive was slow. By 1990, an agreement was reached to have ExxonMobil remediate the toxic site. But still, activists and residents became frustrated with the lack of action by the oil company. And the process is still ongoing. The New York Department of Environmental Conservation guesses that it'll take at least another 10 years to clean up the site. But it is slowly getting better. Jeff Cobb says that Greenpoint is greener these days, thanks to community action and environmental remediation. So when we first moved here, which was in the early 1990s, you can imagine this, we were completely cut off from our waterfront. So one of the, the good things that's happened is that we've gotten two parks. So we're beginning to, to reclaim the waterfront. Uh, so in, environmental questions are really, really on the front burner now. In 2010, New York State and ExxonMobil reached a settlement, of which $19.5 million will go to funding community projects to make up for the environmental disaster that the oil company caused. And part of that funding is going to a new public library building. Greenpoint's branch is being rebuilt right now, and it's set to open in the coming months. One thing that's going to be part of that new library is a new archive. And it's going to be pretty different from the archives that are here in the basement at Central. A large part of this archive is going to be oral histories. Here are some clips from longtime Greenpoint residents. First, Bill Salzman, then Michael Leantonio, Mary Corba, Rose Giordano, and Jeffrey Hiller. Uh, I think the word to describe Greenpoint maybe back in the 1950s was gray. No one thought about the environment uh, back in the day. Uh, no one thought about, you know, clean water, uh, clean air, anything of that nature. The bridges which, you know, sur you know surround uh, Greenpoint, the Williamsburg Bridge, they would clean them and paint them all the time. And of course, that's all lead paint. So that would be all over, you know, Greenpoint. There was a lot of health issues that I was aware of growing up. Lots of women had breast cancer. People they say, you know, Greenpoint was the cancer capital of the, of the nation. I never knew that to be true because back in the day, you know, if you had cancer, uh, you never told anybody. The average person in this neighborhood at that time worked for either Domino Sugar, the pencil factory, or Levitin's. Well, now the Newtown Creek is finally clean enough that birds go in it, but you should have smelt it years ago. The odor was horrendous. I worked in what they call New York Progressive Wood Heel Company. <laughs> they made heels for high for women's shoes. I had to just dip in the ink or whatever it was. And you know the, the lift on the heel? I just had to go make it a color of, that would go with the shoe, you know. All my life I lived here. The neighborhood has changed a lot. I went to see the house where I was born at and saw that it was not there anymore. That is now a new high-rise building. 
we want to be the last old school business while all these towers go <laughs> go up around us we will continue to have used clothing here how glamorous Greenpoint helped provide service for the city in a lot of different ways through waste transfer through creating kerosene like so many things have happened in this neighborhood and a lot of the times these things are forgotten that's from an episode of Borrowed called Oil Spills and Mouldy Paper, hosted by Chrissa Corbett-Cavouris and Felice Bell. And thanks to the show's writer and producer, Virginia Marshall, for helping me share that with you. And that's about it from us for now, as well as Borrowed. This week, we've been listening to The Shrink Next Door, Inside the Comedian and True Crime New Zealand. And just before I go, big shout out to the RNZ podcast team. Beyond Kate and Gone Fishing have just been recognised with gold awards at the New York Festival Awards. Bang! Melody Thomas Show won silver. And William Ray's Black Sheep was a finalist. So well done to all the team. See you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.